And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies aspires to be a true leader for businesses and communities. In the words of their CEO, my friend, his name is Rusty Keeley, with a world-class culture focused on people and customer-centric approach. We're truly in the business of people. Check more out about Keeley Companies at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Our guest today is a remarkable human being. He's certain to inspire you with what he's done in his life. He is a marathon runner. He's run more than a dozen. He's an ultra marathon runner, which is a remarkable thing. It's like twice the length of a normal marathon. He's also been an American Ninja Warrior. These are some pretty awesome accomplishments for anybody, but in particular for someone who's been diagnosed with something we know very well in our family, Parkinson's disease. Jimmy Choi was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease at age 27, early onset Parkinson's disease, and for the next eight years, gave up on life. My friends, he just gave up on life. And then there was a turning point. You're going to hear about that turning point during this episode. You're going to hear about what sparked it, what became of it, and ultimately what it means for you going forward in your life. It's going to be a remarkable episode. And for me, it's a personal one. For those who have read my book on fire, or you read maybe a more recent book called In Awe, or you've heard me speak virtually, or you know me as a friend or a family member, you know that two of my favorite heroes go by the name Susan and Denny O'Leary. Uh, you can call them Mr. or Mrs. O'Leary. You can call them Uncle Denny and Aunt Susan. You can call them Grandma and Grandpa for my own kids. But one thing you absolutely must call them is resilient, is faithful, is filled with hope. They are incredible examples to their six kids. They're incredible examples to their family and friends. They're incredible examples to our community. And one of the reasons, and there are many, but one of the reasons why they shine so brightly is because for almost three decades, they together have weathered the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. It's my dad who has carried the diagnosis, but without a doubt, his caretaker, his care partner, it's language you'll hear Jimmy use here shortly, care partner, has been right there alongside of him every single step along the journey. We cannot do life by ourselves. That's just a fact. We can't do life by ourselves. No, not even during a global pandemic. You are not made to do life by yourselves. But together, when there's a cause greater than the excuse, when there's a reason to get back up, I think we can do incredible things together. You're going to be reminded of that on this podcast with my newest friend and now yours. His name is Jimmy Choi. Jimmy Choi, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you very much for having me. It really is an honor. Well, dude, the the honor is mine. And, uh, you know, we share some similarities. We also share some profound differences. You cheer for the Chicago Cubs. I cheer for the St. Louis Cardinals. How do we, how do we somehow build a bridge between our differences? 
you know what? I think we both hate the Brewers. So <laughs> let's go with that. Find common enemies. That's a great approach. Jimmy, when you meet someone, and you know, you heard the introduction a moment ago, but when you meet someone who doesn't know you, and maybe it's in a grocery store, the sideline of one of your kids' games, and they say, hey, uh, what do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? How do you respond to that? Very simple. I come right out to it. I say, I'm a motivational speaker. You know, their next question is, well, what do you talk about? And then I immediately go into my, this is my teachable moment. Um, because, so I, I, I'm a person that lives with Parkinson's. People just don't really understand what that disease really is outside of, oh, I heard Michael J. Fox had it or Muhammad Ali has it. And, oh, don't you shake? Aren't you supposed to be, uh, you know, 70 years old to get that? Yeah. So I always use these moments as teachable moments. And then I start telling people uh, more about the disease and, and how it can affect people as young as a two-year-old has been diagnosed with it, you know? So really just trying to break break that stigma and break that barrier for us. When you speak, not specifically around Parkinson's disease, but just generally as a motivational speaker, outside of elevating PD and the challenges and the opportunities that we have as a community to embrace folks who've been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, what, what's the real message you're trying to convey to the audience? The, the real message is that uh, life is going to throw obstacles at you and you never know in what form and which way it's going to throw it at you. But just know that there's always a way around it. It's going to be tough, but there's always a way around. Mm. Jimmy, you live up in Bolingbrook outside of Chicago, Illinois. It's a, a four and a half hour trip from my hometown here in St. Louis, but you grew up halfway around the world. You know, I, I like to begin at the beginning. So let's take it all the way back to Taiwan. Would you share a little bit of what life was like growing up in Taiwan? Sure. You know, I always like to joke about this. You know, I mean, guys, guys like us, we, we get this joke because we're, we're the same generation, right? Um, yeah, just like everything in the 70s, I was made in Taiwan. Taiwan is really not, you know, living in the city of Taiwan itself is really not that much different than living in any big city here in the United States, with the exception of the markets are probably more traditional Asian markets that you might imagine. There's live chicken and things like that. Um, but no, I mean, we have, we have access to, to, to all of the modern amenities as everybody else does here in the United States, but it's very crowded in Taiwan. Um, everywhere you went, there's people, uh, schools are crowded, uh, and there's, a comp there's competition for everything, uh, including getting in line for a bus or, or, right. or <laughs> just so many people packed in you know, moving, making the shift from Taiwan to the United States at age 10 was a huge culture shock for me. Because when I came here, number one, there's no year round schooling here in the US. Holy cow, I get summers off. Um, number two, there's so much space. What do you mean we have to get into a car to get to a grocery store? Right. You know, um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the entire culture shift is, was incredible. And, and, and also my brothers and I didn't speak a word of English when we came to the United States. So I, I read that about, you know, I'm, I'm really curious how that went down. You, you began by sharing, you know, Chicago summers, man, what a, what a gift for a kid and, and uh, a lot of, a lot more wide open spaces as the Dixie chicks sing about, but you came over here, not knowing English. Yeah. So talk about that transition from a wildly different culture to now the American culture, but also not knowing the language. It was tough simply because, you know, we, we were plucked from what we know right environment that we know and, and the language that we speak to an area where we really didn't know much now I was fortunate my, my parents put us in Chicago area and we were able to find a school inside Chinatown that do have bilingual teachers um, 
so, so that it provided us with that transition. And remember, remember that excitement I just shared about not having year-round school? Yeah. Boy, was I wrong because <laughs> I've had to take summer school for the next four years just to play catch up, you know, when it comes to U.S. history and, and, and language and, and all that good stuff. So I ended up going to school year-round anyways. That, that, lear that initial learning that, that came, that, that whole culture dump that happened, it felt like a roller coaster ride. I mean, I was only 10, 10 years old. And to be honest, I don't remember a lot of it. But right. what I do remember was everything coming at me really, really quickly. You know, I had to make friends at fast. So how do I do it? Couldn't communicate properly with my American friends because we were in Chinatown for a little bit and then we moved out to Bolingbrook. Then we were kind of on our own. What I found back then, which I didn't realize until now later in life, is that, you know, if you just showed kindness to people, they will make, you know, show kindness in return. And so making friends wasn't really that hard because it, I, I, if, as long as I show them respect, I'm going to get respect in return. But at the same time, people that misunderstand me because of my lack of communication skills, there was a barrier for me to have to break through uh, in order to fit in. There's a couple of universal languages. Number one was math. And in Taiwan, we were taught math that were four or five years ahead of where American students were at the time. So I was great in math and I, and I ended up on the math team. So I, I was a math rock star. So that gave me some friends. Um, number Can two- Can you help my fifth graders with math yeah. right now? I'm struggling mightily figuring out these assignments they bring home at nighttime. It's, as we age, now, I, I don't think I can, I can do very well in that game show. <laughs> Are you smarter than a fifth grader? <laughs> right. Um, but the second thing that I, that, that I found in terms of Universal was, uh, was, was sports. Yeah. I played baseball and I, and I played baseball here, not speaking very much, but I was a decent player. Uh, and then I wrestled and I was a great wrestler. Um, and then being a good wrestler, you kind, of, you kind of become the tough guy, even though you don't speak much and nobody <laughs> wants to mess with you. You, well, you go on from baseball and wrestling, you parlay that into football and you do so well, you become the captain of the football team. Yeah, that's uh, back in high school. And, you know, I, I attributed a lot of my successes, so to speak, in, in these things in life uh, to my parents. They, they've always said, you know, Jimmy, you don't have to be the best at everything, right? Like, unlike some Asian stereotypes that you hear, right? Yeah, you, you got to be the best or, or, or you're nothing. Now, my, my, my dad always says, you know what, just be above average right? Just be above average. So what that taught me is anything that I tried in life, whether it's sports, it's uh, professional, whether it's uh, in school learning, if I can just be above average, I will never be at the bottom. It's okay if I'm never at the top, right? Um, but I'm always going to be good at what I put my time into. Yeah. Well, you, you put your time after a certain amount of time, not only into sports, but also into dating. You meet a, a young lady named Cheryl. What, what, what was it about her that you, uh, you fell for? It was kind of the, the opposites of track story. She was, I was captain of the football team. We met in high school, captain mm -hmm. of the football team, and she was a valedictorian. You know, it was kind of like just the complete opposite. But we were friends before we, before we started dating. You learn a lot when you become good friends with, with people. We were in, in a group of, of, of close friends, and we just kind of grew, grew closer together from that. And you, you learned who they really are based on how they treat other people. You learn who they really are based on uh, how they treat their family, uh, the priorities that they take. Cheryl has always been a hard worker. She didn't, her family didn't come from much. Um, she worked through high school to help provide for her family along with her siblings. And to me, that was not only noble, but uh, I mean, it takes a lot of discipline for a high school student. Yes. 
to take on that responsibility. You fall in love in high school. You fall in love with her heart and her character and who she is. And you begin living the perfect life, man. The American dream. You move from Taiwan, you're living the American dream. You get married, you have a couple kids, you're growing and thriving professionally. And then your life, you know, you used the analogy a moment ago about a curveball. You get a curveball. I think you're you're 27 years old when this curveball shows up in your life. Would you would you talk about how you knew that something was going on medically in your life? I didn't know something medically was going wrong in my life. In fact, everything that I was feeling at the time that wasn't right, I could explain that away with everyday life. Right? I was 27 years old. I I, I worked. This is back in the dot com days, right? So this yeah. is late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, so there's high stress technology jobs. Um, I was in the thrones of it. Twitches here and there. I think, you know what, that's, that's got to be stress. I mean, everybody has, has felt stress-related twitches, right? That little eyeball twitch, mm-hmm. you know, maybe your fingers a little bit, uh, your, your muscle spasms here and there. So I thought that was just um, stress-related. And I was active. Like, I, as I mentioned, I played a lot of golf after college. You know, I would carry my own bags. I always walked. So, and my wife was another reason why I love her is she let me play like four rounds of golf uh, every week, but I would always walk and feeling a little bit sore after walking 18 holes for three days in a row. That's pretty normal, right? Everything that's happening to me, I can always find an excuse in everyday life to explain it away. But my parents always told me, Jimmy, when you get married, you got to go buy life insurance. You got to protect your family. So that's exactly what I did. I went and bought life insurance. So the person that came, the nurse that came and did my life insurance physical, She took one quick look at me and she says, all right, I'm going to tell you something. I do this insurance physical on the side, but my full-time job is a nurse at a neurologist's office. I'm already seeing things about you that I see very regularly and it's very familiar to me. And of course that piqued my interest. Now she was very careful. She didn't say the word Parkinson's. All she said was I work in a neurologist's office and I see things about the way you walk, about the way you move. And then when I checked your pupils dilations, um, it, it told me that you should go talk to your doctor about these topics that we talked about today. And that's what started my, my road down diagnosis. And you know, it took months and months of, of specialists, neurologists, and, and just doctor's appointments after doctor's appointment before somebody was brave enough to tell me that I had Parkinson's. And the reason I say brave enough is because I was 27 years old. Many neurologists already ruled out Parkinson's. It's like, you know, it can't be that. Let's not even think about that. But Finally, I think it was a third or fourth neurologist. Um, she told me that, hey, Jimmy, I think you have Parkinson's. Jimmy, I, I read that you were going to all these neurologist appointments by yourself. And that even after you were diagnosed by this brave physician, that you kept it to yourself. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't just after this brave physician, because I actually cussed her out when she told me I had Parkinson's. Yeah. I actually, I went to a second opinion and I got a third opinion. All this by yourself. All this by myself, I kept it from Cheryl. Uh, I was so sure that nothing was wrong with me. I was so sure that it was gonna be nothing, that I just needed vitamin C or you know, whatever, that I, 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 didn't even tell, I didn't even tell it. Only when I decided that I was gonna start taking medication because it made me feel a little bit better, made me feel a little bit more normal, did I tell her about it. And that wasn't until three months after I was diagnosed. I'm always curious and I know it's personal, but what, what was it like when you sit down at the dinner table or across from one another at, you know, at a park bench and you're, you're sharing with her that you've been going to a neurologist and after a couple of months, 
you have it. You've, you've been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. One of the reasons I love her is that she's very understanding, but she's also the smartest person that, 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 that I know. I, I know she was mad. I know she was mad for sure. At the same time, she never, never really lashed out or showed it because I, I think she also understands that that's, this is also how um, I tend to deal with things is I try to take on, take on these loads, uh, take on things alone by myself before bringing other people in. So I, I know she was mad, but at the same time, she was very compassionate about it. She's like, okay, now what, what do we do? What are the next steps? You know, she immediately went into, into the, the care partner mode, you know, looking back how I handled it from that situation, moving forward for the next eight years, just wasn't, wasn't the right route to take. The, the route you chose, I think is one many of us choose. And although, you know, listen, not all of us will be diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. We all face these, these things that we'd rather just stuff back into the closet and we shut yeah. the door and we just kind of shut our eyes. Oh, and it's gone. It's gone. Yeah. We don't about it anymore but it's still right there in the closet you you mentioned john for eight years man i handled this the wrong way so would you describe how you handled it for eight years yeah i did exactly what you just said i shoved it in the closet and i closed the door and i walked away i ignored it for eight years i took that pill that they gave me that they gave me for eight years i never went back to make adjustments i never went back to tell my doctor how i was feeling how these medications were, were making me feel. Um, I never went back to say, hey, what can I do next? I, I took this pill. It made me feel better at the time. And I figured, you know what? I'm feeling good now. So that's going to be it. I'm just going to do this forever. So I ignored it. The Parkinson's is a, is a progressive disease. So you, it, everything changes so slowly. So for me, when things change so slowly, my body is constantly making adjustments. So to me, every day, is a new normal for me, right? It feels normal because this is what I'm used to. And the changes are so small. And as it goes on a year later, to me, it's still normal because that's how I always moved in my mind. But my friends, my family who haven't seen me in weeks or months, immediately the first question is, holy, are you okay? Because they see the changes, all right? But for me, I've lived in that denial that this is my normal. So I'm just gonna keep going at it because nothing is wrong. And so Jimmy, some some of the changes that they're seeing, you're beginning to twitch more frequently. You're requiring a cane. And in addition to all of this, you've gained a little bit of weight. Yeah, I became so inactive, right? And you know, what was weird is that just thinking back, I was active because I thought everything was normal until I got that diagnosis. When I was given the diagnosis, it's like somebody flipped a switch. And all of a sudden I stopped doing, like almost immediately, I stopped doing all these active things. I stopped golfing. I stopped playing basketballs with my friends and, and, and being active and all that stuff. So I became so inactive and I kept falling over as, as the disease progressed that, I, as you mentioned, I needed a cane to walk and uh, I weighed up 240 pounds. I'm five feet eight, 240 pounds. I'm a big, I'm a big dude at 240, at five feet eight. So it's just gotten to the point where movement has become difficult and really motivation is gone because not only, not only am I only my not being active anymore, but I started to really isolate myself against my friends. And now it's, it's always, there's always that awkward moment when you see your friends say, Oh, Hey, how are you doing? And then you nod, right? You're like, Hmm, do you really want to know how I'm doing? So, so then, so then I'll say, let's be cautious. Say, no, I'm fine. I'm good. And then when I say that, I'm sitting there nodding and then you spend that five seconds nodding at each other. And then you just sort of turn away and you go your separate ways. Right. So that's upon first meeting. And then three months later, you do the same thing. And then it finally gets to the point where your friends are going to be like, you know what? I'm not even going to ask him because yeah. I want to avoid 
that awkwardness. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious, and this always drives my wife crazy, and uh, maybe it drives you crazy too. We'll find out here in a moment. When I ask someone how they're doing and they say I'm fine, and in particular when I know that there's something going on, you know, relationally, financially, Parkinson's, whatever the thing is, I always say, uh, no, man, seriously, how are you doing? I, I try to give them permission to be real if they want, and if they don't, that's fine. Yeah. But I, I'm curious, like, are, do you prefer just to kind of get check the box and say, no, man, I'm fine. And then go your separate ways. Or do you, do you prefer being real with people? You know, the first eight years, I'd rather just check the box and go my separate ways. Right. Um, but now I, be, I, I, I want to be real with people. Um, I, now, you know, I, I welcome that opportunity when they ask, when they give me a second chance and, ask, and say, no, man, uh, seriously, how are you feeling? Because now I know they want to engage, right? Um, and if I know that you want to engage, I'm going to tell you how things are. But I'm going to do it in a way that, that you can relate, you know, how, just because I'm telling you all these things wrong about me, I'm also gonna tell you things that I'm doing to try to make those that better, and things that you can do to try to make that better. Um, so no, I, I, I prefer it now, but yes, back in the day, I would have just preferred to just walk away and not even make eye contact at all. You mentioned that, John, I, I lost my motivation, man. I, I, I lost the spark for eight years shut my eyes, locked it in the closet, gained 85 pounds, needed a cane, falling all the time, giving up on life. And maybe you wouldn't have said that back then, but if you look back at it, that's, that's indeed what was happening. So what changed? I always believe that there comes a point in a person's life where you, oh, you, you hit that, that, I call it a rock bottom moment or a, a moment that change, changes everything. And for me, it was my son. He was only, so my kids have never grown up and they have never known their dad to be without Parkinson's. My daughter is, is 13 years old. I've been diagnosed for 18 years. So as, far, as long as they've been alive, I've had Parkinson's. But my son was, this is in 2010. My son was only about 10 months old. I was at the top of my stairs and um, I had cane in one hand and I had my son in the other hand. And I'm like, you know what? There's railing. I don't need my cane. Put it aside. Started walking down the stairs and sure enough, went tumbling down the stairs, the two of us. And I kept him above me as, as best as I can. I kept him safe. Uh, I took all the brunt of the fall. The worst part about that fall wasn't the bumps and the bruises. The worst part was when I hit the bottom of the landing, I looked up, my wife and my daughter were staring at us. And the look of horror in, in, in their faces was enough to tell me that, hey, Jimmy, you have become a safety hazard to your child. You are becoming a burden to Cheryl. Instead of contributing to the family, you're now adding a burden to the family. So what am I gonna do about that? And that, that point in my life really jolted what comes next and is what I need to do is find something, some way to gain some control back. You know, my, my dad, who is my hero, and I just love the guy. I, I've seen him fall <laughs> tragically many, many, many times. And every single time you just look and you're like, oh, like your heart aches, your heart aches. And for you to be at the bottom of a staircase, holding a 10 month old, looking up at your baby girl, looking up at your wife, seeing them with, with that look of horror on their face. It just, it, it breaks me, man. Like I'm emotional thinking about that. And and the love that allows you to then pick yourself back up, pick up Mason, stand back up and say, I'm going to start doing better. So what was your next step? I really didn't know what my next step was going to be because remember, I've ignored my progression up to this point. 
Well, my friends, you've been listening to Jimmy Choi share his story, his story of childhood, his story of growing up, his story of meeting a girl, a story of raising kids, a story of an unwanted and unexpected diagnosis, his story of struggle, his story of hiding from the truth, and now most recently his story of falling down the steps and realizing that there's more for him getting back up that he found at the bottom, that there is a reason indeed to climb again. You're going to hear now about that climb. You're going to hear now about him rising back up, and you're going to be inspired to do the same in your life. You see, from time to time in all of our lives, it feels as if we are the ones that got pushed down the steps, that we're the ones that lost our balance, that we're the ones that whether because of the actions of someone else or maybe the inactions of someone else, maybe the words they spoke or the words they chose not to speak, maybe the mistakes we made that right now we find ourselves at the bottom of that staircase. If you feel like you're there right now, if you feel like you're in a rut, if you feel like there's no one there for you and you feel like it's time for you to get back up, time to start elevating, time to start rising, time to start living more fully your life, to come out of the shadows and step fully unapologetically, boldly, and brilliantly back into the light. We want to do exactly that with you. We've got a community here at Live Inspired. We call it Live Inspired Together. You've been hearing over the last several episodes from Coach Matt, and Coach Matt wants to be a guide for you along the journey. Here's the opportunity right now to partner with us because we want to partner back with you. I want you to text Matt. I could send you to a website. We could send you to some type of informational blog. But I just want to begin the relationship with you. And I know Matt wants to begin it with you. And I know and I hope that you want to begin it with us. And so the ask right now is that you will grab your phone and text Matt right now. Coach Matt, he's a board member. He's a friend. He's a podcast guest. And he's the master coach. He's responsible for all the coaches here at Live Inspired. I want you to text him right now. His number is 314-207-207. 5010. I'm going to say that again so that no one, not even you, mom, I know you listen to this episode, can say I spoke too fast. You weren't able, able to type all 10 digits in. Here it is one more time. 314-207-5010. So 314-207-5010. I want you to text Matt your name. You can give them your first name or your first name and your last name and tell them one area where you want to get better in 2021. One area you want to improve, something you want to achieve, a goal you're stretching toward, a struggle you're facing. But this year, our goal as an organization is to do life with people. In the midst of a global pandemic, in the midst of recessionary winds, with all the political divisiveness that we've been experiencing, with all the challenges we have organizationally, financially, professionally, in every aspect of life for so many, we want to make sure that you recognize that you are not alone, that there's dignity in your life, that the foundation is firm, the headwind is real, but the best days remain ahead. So final time, grab a friend right now, his number, 314-207-5010. Coach Matt, text them your name. Let them know where you want to improve this year, and it is on. We are about to do life together. Now, back to how Jimmy Choi bounced back up. You're going to love it. So what was your next step? I really didn't know what my next step was going to be because, remember, I've ignored my progression up to this point. The first thing that popped in my head is I have to find a cure. And I think that was very naive of me at the time, right? Because, remember, 
I didn't even open a pamphlet that I was given up to this point. In the desire, everything started as really selfish, selfishly motivated. Now, in that desire to find that cure, you know, I'm going to find that cure. I'm going to, I'm going to be that first person to get it. So how do I do it? I look online, right? You're not going to find a cure for Parkinson's online. But what I did find was clinical trials. There are many, many clinical trials listed, and they are all starving for participants, mm-hmm. right? So I figured, you know what? This is how I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to go ahead and sign up for all of these because if one of these happened to be the cure, I'm going to be the first person to get it. And, and this will tell you about the state of mind I was in back then. And, and you mentioned, this is thinking back. Of course, I didn't think this way back then, but thinking back, this is how dangerous it was for me. You know, I would sign up for these clinical trials, no matter how simple they were or how risky they may have been. Some of them were invasive. My thought process was if this risky procedure is the cure, I'm going to be the first person to get it. But if it failed and something went horribly wrong and I, my life was taken, it wouldn't be so bad because now I don't have to live with Parkinson's. Right. Even in saying that is now that you've had a decade since that self-talk, is it hard for you to even say that, gosh, John, this is the way I once felt? It, it, it is. It is. And, um, you know, I, I get emotional about it because now I know, you know, had, had anything happened back then, I know what I've missed. Yeah. This, this last, this, this last 10 years that I've, that I've experienced, I know what I would have missed. And watching my kids grow up, I, 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 missing that would have been just, I, I, I can't even think about it. So the pharmacists are poking and prodding on you. The doctors are poking and prodding on you. And eventually you begin to not only go the medical route, but more of a physical route. You begin to take back your health. You know, all these clinical trials that I was taking part, I was participating in, there was one thing in common that I started noticing was that it didn't matter if the, uh, these trials were, uh, were procedure or not, or they were just questionnaires. They, there's always a component of physical activity involved. If it was a questionnaire, it always asked, how much exercise are you doing? What type of exercises are you doing? And I participated in a physical therapy trial where it's forced movement that they, that they put on you. Um, so they put you on a stationary bike and then the stationary bike rides on its own. You just got to keep up with it. It's during those trials that I started noticing that after these sessions, I am feeling a little bit better than I was going in and that I felt a little bit better afterwards. After like three or four of these sessions, I'm like, you know what, maybe I should start doing some of this stuff at home by myself. So I started taking walks with, with the family. You know, we, we never did that. First, it's going out once around the block with my cane. And then as I felt more comfortable and more uh, confident with the way that I moved, I would leave the cane at home and see how far I can get. And that's how it started. You know, once around the block became two and two became three. Walking became jogging and jogging became running. And it just, every day I felt better. Every day I try to do a little bit more. If it's just one more step, if I can take one more step today than I did yesterday, that's what I was going to do. Your analogy is great, man. The steps become walking, the walking becomes jogging, the jogging becomes running. And the once around the block eventually becomes 5K. And then yeah. 10K. And then you're running a 15K, a half marathon, man. And eventually, I love this story. You, you, you want to run the Chicago marathon. It's your own backyard, but it's sold out. So this guy, right. just a couple months earlier, requires a cane, is 85 pounds overweight, is hiding from his struggles because he doesn't want to face them, is now facing them upright, staring directly at them, ready to run a marathon against them. And that moment 
shaped my path for me as it is today. Chicago Marathon was sold out. Who knew people with 40,000 people would pay money to punish themselves for 26 miles, right? That's crazy. I was still new to running. I'd never heard of a race being sold out, um, except for the Chicago Marathon. So then, you know, I really still wanted to run in the race. So I started looking at various different options, right? But still being so close to the race, people have already trained for months and various different charities that have bibs have already given all their bibs away. So, you know, I'm like, you know what? The American Cancer Society is great. Uh, you know, the World, uh, World Vision, they're great, but they're all out of bibs. So I'm like, you know what, what am I doing? Why do I look for a charity that has to do with Parkinson's and try to run for them? Do a little bit something for myself too while I'm at it. That's where I found the Michael J. Fox Foundation. You know, I called them up and I said, hey, you know what? I know it's close to the race. I know you guys have bibs and I'm not expecting that you have one, but what do you guys think? Do you guys have, have a bib left? They told me, hey, hey, Jeremy, we've got one bib. To this day, I, I, I always feel that that bib was, was meant for me. But they said, you know what? If you take this bib, though, you have to raise, yeah, there's a fundraising requirement for this bib. And it's $2,000. And you got to do it within, you know, before the race. You have a month to do it. I've never fundraised up to this point. So what do we do, right? We, we, you ask your friends and family, right? Um, now, my, my inner circle, my close friends and family knew I had Parkinson's, but nobody in the Facebook world really knew. Hmm. So as I reached out and I asked for donations, I had to tell them why I was doing it. So this is really the first time I started sharing my story in a, in a broader spectrum. And the response was overwhelming. Hmm. Uh, it was positive. It was supportive. Completely opposite of what I thought it, I, I might get from the internet. I was able to raise $5,000 and getting involved with the Michael J. Fox Foundation, I was introduced to a community of other people with Parkinson's, other uh, care partners, people who are fighting uh, to raise money for Parkinson's research, just like me, my age, people in my profession, people I can relate to, people that's been living with Parkinson's for much longer than I have that I can reach out and ask them for advice. And this is the moment that shaped everything for me is that I realized that in that one month's time, not only did I raise $5,000, I, you know, I blew that $2,000 out of the water. I raised $5,000 for research. I was able to tell my story and, and, and hopefully inspired other people to move. But I was connected into the community now that was providing me with nuggets of information and gold that allowed me to live better with Parkinson's. I did that in one month. And that was way more than the entire eight years previously combined up to that point. As I got the email that says, you've reached your fundraising goal. And, and I'm sitting in the starting line of the Chicago Marathon, getting ready to, 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 to run my first marathon ever. And I'm thinking about that. I'm like, what the hell was I doing for eight years? What the hell was I doing for eight years? Why, why have I not done more of this? So I ran the marathon. As soon as I crossed that finish line, I was, I was in pain. I'm like, sign me up for the next one. <laughs> well, you did the next one and then the next one and then the next one. I know you've done more than a dozen. You've also done something called an ultra marathon. Jimmy, what is an ultra marathon? Dude, you run so many marathons, it, it starts to get kind of boring, right? And it's like, all right, so what's the next level? And the next level apparently is an ultra marathon. And in this case, it was a 50 mile run. So instead of 26.2 miles, let's just go for a round number, right? Next round number of 50. So I did that once and, uh, once was enough. <laughs> Jimmy, how, how is all this exercise and focus on taking the next best step forward affected you first physically, and then maybe even more importantly, emotionally and spiritually? Number one, it, all this exercise and, and of course, changing my diet, um, doing the right things from a nutrition standpoint. You don't mind, what, what are you doing there? Because I, 
you know, my dad has Parkinson's. I know a whole lot of folks listening right now may have Parkinson's disease or they may love someone with Parkinson's disease. What are you doing on the nutrition side that's, that you found helpful? For the last 18 years, I've tried everything. I mean, you've, you name it, paleo, uh, Mediterranean, uh, low carb. I, I've tried it all. Uh, what I found worked best for me, right? And of course, this is, this is my own experience, what, what works for me, uh, is just to eat clean. Stay clean. Uh, get as much whole foods as you, as you can into your system. Stay away from the processed stuff. Now, it's, it's life, right? Enjoy it. Have your ice cream. Have your fried chicken every once in a while. Everything in moderation. But if you stay, you know, 90% of the time stay clean, your body is going gonna, is gonna to react well to clean eating. And then if your body is going to react well to it, there's no downside to it. So that's on the diet and the exercise. So how, how has merging those two things together affected you physically? So, you know, not only has the weight started to come off, right? We talked about 240 down to, at, at that time, down to 155 pounds. Uh, and then uh, the weight started coming off and it allowed me to move better. But exercise was teaching me how it, it actually affects the way that my medicine works in my body. It's taught me how to better manage my on and off periods. Okay. And that's on periods. For those who don't know, on periods is when you're on medication, off periods are when the medications aren't working. It's also teaching me how much stronger I can be despite Parkinson's. Remember that light switch I talked about, it flipped. I stopped being active because somebody told me I had Parkinson's. Nobody told me, hey, Jimmy, you have Parkinson's, but you can still do all these great things physically, right? So I flipped that switch. It was off for eight years. Now I'm starting to flip it back on. So from an emotional standpoint, it's like, this is therapy, right? It's therapy. When you're out there running, and, you know, for hours at a time, you do two things. You, you do math in, in your head, right? And then you think about your life. You think about uh, your family. You think about friends and you think about uh, what you're trying to do. It's really a moment to, to, to allow yourself to clear your head. Just coming from a, a period of, of darkness and anger, this next period of, is, has really brought me more joy. Exercise has become medication for me. I have heard that you were watching television. So let's just make sure listeners, you know, that Jimmy's not always running. Sometimes the man chills. So he's, he's got some normalcy to him. You're watching television with your little Karina and you're watching one of her favorite shows, American Ninja Warrior. Talk, talk about what this is going to lead to. I, the, the whole story, man, in some regards, it's made for Hollywood. It's, it's unbelievable the ebbs and the flows and the ups and the downs of your life. And so you go from this man who's 85 pounds overweight with a cane to a man who's running ultra marathons to now a fellow who's got his arm around his daughter on the couch, watching her favorite show. And then what happens? Yeah. For years, every, every season American Ninja Warrior comes out, she goes, Hey dad, all she can remember is her dad with Parkinson's, but all she can remember from the time she started remembering things is me running marathons. Right. So to her, I am Superman. There's nothing I can't do. So every time American Ninja Warrior comes out, she goes, hey, dad, you should, you should try out for the show. You should go and you should go. You would do really well. And then I look at her, you're crazy, right? Uh, you need balance to do what they do up there. You need upper body strength. All I do is run. I have no upper body strength. I can't hang. I can't pull myself up. And I started giving her all these excuses, right? And uh, three, three seasons pass. Every year she would ask. And every year I would give her an excuse. And then we were watching the show and you know, a couple of competitors that went on had prosthetics, a couple of competitors went on, they were dealing with, everybody's dealing with you know, their own adversities, right? And then she turns to me and she goes, what's your excuse again? 
And I'm like, you know, I, I, I really didn't have any, right? I, I, cause I didn't have any because I'm, I'm sitting here trying to teach her um, to do hard things when life throws obstacles at you and, and, and when adversity hits. And yet I'm giving her excuses on these things of why I shouldn't be an American Ninja Warrior. I said, you know what? All right, you win. I'm gonna apply for the show. Really just to shut her up, right? I just, you know what? I'm just gonna get it over with, check the box. And when they tell me no, then she'll, I can tell her, hey, I've tried. To my surprise, the, uh, the producers of the show, they called me and they said, hey, we're gonna give you a shot on the show. Get ready. And I was like, holy crap, because to be honest, I wasn't expecting to be called. And I, was give, I had to give myself a crash course on American Ninja Warrior that first year I, I competed, which was 2017. How nervous were you, man, with the folks, you know, the, the audience jam-packed, you're at the starting line, the announcers are going, uh, you're, you're wearing the, the outfit of the day. How, what were the emotions you were feeling? You know, I, it's, it's, it was the most frightening thing I've ever had to do, but yet it was also the most exciting thing I've ever had to do at the same time. Uh, there was just scores of emotion going on. When I accepted the invitation to, to compete on the show, I said, you know what? I would love to do it if you guys would allow me to represent the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Um, so I donned on the Michael J. Fox Foundation shirt, and then I became known as the Fox Ninja from, from the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And then when I stepped up on the platform ready to go, I'm like, I got myself mentally ready. I'm like, I'm ready to go. I'm going to go and just do my best and whatever is going to happen is going to happen. And they say, hold on, hold on, Jimmy. We got a special message for you. And then they put on the Jumbotron, a message from Michael J. Fox himself, uh, wishing me the best and telling me what a warrior I've, I, I've been up to this point so far and that, and that things I've, I, I've done with the foundation have not gone, on, have gone, have not gone unnoticed. And it was a gut-wrenching emotional moment right there at, this, at the start line. Uh, but you know what? I, I, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that message um, because it, 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 it not only provided me a boost, um, but for those people watching that has been affected by Parkinson's. It doesn't matter if it was Jimmy Troy up there, if it was Bob Johnson up there, Michael would have came up and provided the same type of uh, words of wisdom or, or, or well wishes to anybody because that's what he... That's what he stood for in the Parkinson's community. We're out here supporting each other. No matter what's going to happen, let's celebrate it instead of worrying about that how cold that water is, which I found out later was extremely cold. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? For a rookie 41-year-old at the time uh, competitor on the show, I did quite well. I, I ended up right just above the middle of the pack at the end of the day. Um, you know, they don't show everybody's run because a lot of people don't make it as far or, you know, there was actually more than a hundred and something competitors on the show. Um, but they only show like 30 or 40 of us, but I finished above average. <laughs> that are proud. That's right. It made my dad proud. That experience in itself uh, opened a lot, a, a lot of doors for me from a uh, um, Parkinson's awareness standpoint, and it's helped my wife and I raise more than $500,000 for Parkinson's research to date, uh, which we are, we are super grateful for. It's, it's not that I'm, I'm stronger or any, or any better than some of these Parkinson's warriors that I've met over the years, because I can sit for hours and tell you about all of them. It's just that I had the opportunity and someone stuck a camera in front of me, so I might as well use it for all the good I can and spread some awareness. I mean, there's so many aspects of your story that I just am so attracted to. And the idea of a little girl saying, daddy, you still are Superman, act like it, put the cape yeah. on and fly again. And then you do, 
and then you do. And you, you mentioned while talking through that story about how Michael would have done it for anybody because that's how this community is. We do things together. Yeah. And I think during this time that we're living in, so divided racially and economically and certainly politically, my goodness, there was a video that you sent out that reminds us of what we can do when we work together. Yeah. It was a picture of you and I've seen my dad shake as he tries to take his pills. And it is incredibly hard for my dad to take pills from time to yeah. time. And so there's a video of you on TikTok shaking while you're trying to take pills and saying, hey, pharmaceutical companies, what are you doing here? This is impossible. And you send this out and, and that's that, except that's not where the story ends. So would, would you play forward what happens after you send that video out? My whole thing is, you know, if you look at the videos that I share on social media, people see me doing a lot of physical feats that even quote unquote normal people can't do. Um, but at the same time, I wanted to, people to make sure that they see the other side of things, right? When they see, you know, me doing pushups with a 95 pound dog on, behind, on, on my back, that's all cool and stuff, but that's, you're, you're seeing a slice of 15 seconds into my day. You're not seeing the rest of it where I'm struggling to take this pill that I need to be able to do those pushups. So I wanted to show the struggles. And I mean, these pills are, are tiny. They're three millimeters in diameter. If, when your hands are shaking and you're trying to reach into a tiny opening into a pill bottle, it's just impossible to get one out. And then when you do get one out, it's going to fly all over the place and you have to go again and get another one. The idea of the, 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 the pill bottle message was, why can't we do better? Why is it so hard, right? For me to function, I need to take this pill, but I can't take this pill to function. The TikTok community just jumped in. A gentleman by the name of Brian Aldridge, uh, he really just hopped in. And first of all, he's not even an engineer. Oh, he's man. a music producer. He had this idea in his head on how I can how I can make something that's better, but I don't know how to do it, right? So he, what did he do? He, he taught himself how to, how to draw in CAD, 3D draw in CAD. And then he made this design of this pill bottle Essentially, the idea is that it would isolate by turning the bottom, it will isolate a single pill, move it into a chamber, and you just take it back like a shot, right? So you take care of two problems, isolating a pill and delivery of the pill. But then he says, you know what? I designed it, but I don't have a 3D printer. Someone else needs to jump in, help me. And then another person jumps in. And I mean, he got millions of views on that video. And it was, I, was, I mean, I'm not even kidding when I say hundreds or even thousands of people that offered to print. At the end of the day, there were more than a handful that actually printed some of these pill bottles. And we started sending these things around to each other and everybody put their input in and we made changes. Uh, version five uh, came today. I received version five today, uh, but it went to my, it went to my office. And so I haven't, I don't have it with me yet. And I can't wait to get my hands on it. Even version one and two has addressed the problem that I put out on social media already. And what's really amazing about it is that Brian has uh, has talked to patent lawyers and he is uh, going to continue to keep this in the public domain, meaning anybody can grab this and print it for their needs at no cost. The person that's the 3D printer that picked it up, his name, David Exler, he picked it up and now he's offering to send free bottles mm -hmm. at his cost to produce. Five hours each, by the way, to print um, right. at his cost to produce. As long as you show proof that you've donated to the Michael J. Fox Foundation, he was going to send a bottle, up to 50 bottles to anybody that wants it. Absolutely incredible. Even to this day, it's been about two weeks. Um, we're still making changes to the pill bottle. And there's no limit to this because it's not only for people with Parkinson's, MS, people with uh, arthritis, anything. It's a pill bottle for everybody. One well, in, in crowdsourcing. So yes, we're talking specifically about the pill bottle and, and the beauty of 3D printing these things and having open source around that. 
but it's just a reminder to my brothers and sisters on the left or the right who refuse to, to look over the aisle and see brothers and sisters that we've got to figure out a way to come together. We've got to Absolutely. figure out a way to have a common goal and hold the arm tight of the people who look and act and worship and vote differently than you to find common solutions to problems that face us all. And, and this little TikTok video, the sequence that came out of it blew me away, man. So I, I just appreciate everybody who was part of that effort. Yeah. And, and, and not, if you look through all the videos, all the, all the comments between mine and Brian's and David's and various other 3d printers, there's not one single political comment, right. you know, and it's just, how do we get this pill? And a lot of them is people tagging me. Hey, Hey, JC, uh, you know, Jimmy, Chua, have you, have you gotten this? Have you seen this? People were eager to get this information to me. So yeah. I love it. It is. Yeah. Jimmy, as you look forward, I'm going to ask you two questions as we get ready to wrap up with the Live Inspired 7, but the two leads lead into that are these. The, the first question is, what, what concerns you most as you look forward to the future that you know is coming your way with Parkinson's disease? You know, my, my main concern is always my family. What, what are they going to do um, when the day comes where they, they, they have to drop everything they're doing to, to tend to me? I, I, I don't want that day to come, um, but it just certainly is a high high probability that that's going to happen. I worry about that day all the time. Uh, one of the reasons why I work so hard to, to do things for myself so that I can remain independent. Um, that's certainly one of, one of the things that, that, that really worried me. The second thing is um, I, I, we don't know where the future is going to take. Planning for it is, is, is near impossible, but preparing ourselves for it, for any uh, scenario that can come your way, and through education, through um, through advocacy, through experience, learning, um, that's the only thing that I can do. And, and and my worry is, is my body able to to do all these things that I want to do before it starts, before age takes over? Forget Parkinson's. Let's let's talk about age, right? I mean, let's be honest. As much as I love to hit a a buzzer on American Ninja Warrior and, and actually finish a a course, um, am I past my age to be able to do that? I don't know but I'm going to keep trying. But then as I train, my joints are starting to hurt. That's not Parkinson's related. That's just age, right? Um, so, you know, I fear about whether or not I'm going to be able to continue at the pace that, I, that I'm moving so that I can avoid the point where my family has to be uh, a full-time caregiver to me. Well, brother, let me, let me uh, breathe some empathy your way. There are days where I high five myself when I get in the shower in the morning. So uh, if you're hitting the buzzer still at your age with what you've been through, I hope you're, uh, you're patting yourself on the back with your Superman cape waving proudly. And the, the other question that I wanted to ask is for those of my listeners who are in that place of quiet desperation, and maybe they've got the things buried in their closet and they're walking away from it and their eyes are looking downward and they're just beat down, man, by the diagnosis, by the isolation, by COVID-19, by political divisions, whatever the thing is that is just really crushing their spirit. What, what encouragement would you offer them right now? You know, I, we talked about that rock bottom moment, right, um, that I had. And when I was down there in that rock bottom and in and, and this little ditch that I've dug for myself, right, um, thinking, you know, what can I do to, to get myself out? And really is taking your, your situation into, into account and all these things that are weighing down against you, instead of trying to fight it, instead of trying to push it away or avoid it, right. 
think about how you can use that to your advantage, right? Think about how you can use your weaknesses and turn those into your strengths. And if you can do that, opportunities are gonna come for you. Doors are gonna open, you just never know. And I'll give one quick example of that. As a person with Parkinson's, I would lose my balance and I would fall. And because I was falling a lot, I asked myself, what can I do from a fitness perspective uh, to make sure that if I do fall, I can safely control my descent and get myself back up no matter what situation I'm in. Now, if you think about it, that's a burpee, right? A burpee is getting yourself back down the ground, pushing yourself back up. So three years ago, I started doing burpee and I started adding these burpees into my daily workouts. At the end of my workout, I started adding. It's just five at a time. <laughs> but what, I, what, what started as a, as a, a desire to learn a, a survival skill right? After all these years of doing burpee, it led me to the point where, wait a minute, I'm getting so good at these. I think I have a shot at breaking a world record. Once again, what started out as a desire to learn a survival skill then gave me the opportunity to break the world record, which last August, I was, I was fortunate enough to do. I broke the world record for burpees, number of burpees in one minute. How many burpees, Jimmy? 30 chest to ground hand release burpees in one minute. When I was in high school, I went to a Jesuit high school. The punishment, if you were really bad, I mean, they had a lot of different punishment, but the worst punishment was, brother, you're going to do some burpees right now. And there is not a, there's not a worse exercise or punishment I'm aware of than a burpee. So for you to be throwing these into your regiment and now to be the world leader in burpees, uh, I'm glad the cape remains. We're going to pivot now from the burpees, from your experiences into what we call the Live Inspired 7. There's seven questions we ask all of our guests. And, and the first one is, what is the most impactful or inspirational, transformational books you've ever read? Uh, Living with a Seal. It involves David Goggins. It was written by Jesse Etzler. Uh, and it was, he challenged, Jess, Jesse Etzler, founder of Marquis Jet and, and various beverage products, and met uh, David Goggins at a 100-mile race once, invited him to his house and said, I'm going to live like you for 30 days. And, and David Goggins put him through the ringer. And he came out on the other side with a whole new perspective in life. And, and, and I love it. Thank you. Perfect. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a 10-year-old boy in Taiwan that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Man, I think it's uh, that sense of adventure. Um, in Taiwan, we, we, we went everywhere by ourselves. Um, and we got into things. And now, you know, here in the United States and today, we're, we're afraid to look around the corner because we're afraid of what we might find. Mm -hmm. So in, in a way, I'm trying to protect my family and myself. But at the same time, I wish I still had that sense of adventure going. If your home caught fire and Cheryl and the kids and the animals are all out safely and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, one thing that really matters to you, what would you grab? I would uh, definitely run back in and grab a wall of accomplishments. Um, and there are some items on that wall uh, that really means a lot to me. And, and it includes you know, not only my world record certificates, but uh, my first marathon, um, my first 5K. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason why these, these things are important to me, even though they're just trinkets um, and, and participation trophies, right? Uh, because these are milestones in my life that I've, I, I was able to achieve in, in a dark time in my life. If you could sit, uh, why don't we say on Lake Michigan, maybe Navy Pier, and have a nice long conversation with anybody, living or dead? Who would you want to be seated right next to? Well, 
can I give two answers to that? Of course. Well, no, number one is 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 uh, is Michael J. Fox. He's he's been um, you know, I, and I and I've had that opportunity to sit with him and, and really talk with him. And I wanted to bring that up because he's been a a, a just tremendous mentor to me uh, from from living well despite Parkinson's. Uh, so that's definitely one. Uh, sec the second one is Bruce Lee, man. His mindset, uh, and the way he trained, and 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 the way that he moved, and the way that he he understands how his his body and how he used energy and around him. I, I believe that if he can impart his wisdom on, on how he sees movement, it can help a lot of people with Parkinson's and how we see movement. It's mm. good. What's the best advice you've ever received, Jimmy? I'm going to go right back to my dad. The whole mantra of don't be average. Don't, you don't have to be the best. Do well. Be, be above average. This way you can't fail. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? If you could kind of whisper some wisdom or advice into your ear at age 20, what would you say? Man, that's, you know, I, I get asked that all the time. And the answer, the answer to that changes because of just the different things that, that I've learned along the way. But um, the best, I think the best advice I can give my 20-year-old self is to be patient. Progress and change doesn't come overnight. If you're patient, if you're committed, and you keep doing what you're doing, you'll see those changes and you'll see the positivity behind it. Jimmy Troy, you have run the gauntlet, man. Question number seven is, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Oh my goodness, I never thought about this one, man. You really put me in the spot. You came at me hard, but my family was there to push me back against you. It's essentially, you know, without, without my, my kids, my, my, especially my wife, um, she's the driving force behind all of me. I, I'm just a head that gets, gets to say things in front of cameras. They keep throwing things at me and many of those knock me down, but I think my wife and my family are there to push me back up and we fight back together. Well, together we will win this battle, not only against Parkinson's disease, but against many of the social ills that are affecting all of our listeners today. So Jamie, thank you for being exhibit A of what the good fight looks like in living color, man. It, it has been inspirational to learn about you, to watch you, to read you, and not to visit with you today. Well, thank you very much, John. And you know, I always say inspiration is a two-way street. I'm glad you're on the other side of it, brother. All right, man. Well, I'm high-fiving you here. We may not agree on sports teams. <laughs> we can agree on the goodness of life, and I'm glad you're sharing part of your life with us. So, Jimmy, thank you for your time today. Please tell Cheryl and the kids that I'm grateful they reminded you to put the cape back on. And listeners, that is Jimmy Choi. My name is John O'Leary. This is your day. Put your cape back on and live inspired. Now, after hearing that episode, you know why I was so excited to bring Jimmy onto this program to share not only his struggle with you, but his resiliency and what he was able to accomplish with a little help from his friends. We can all get by with a little help from our friends. We all need a little help from our friends from time to time. And I also provided you a friend that you can lean into for a little bit of help, a little bit of guidance, a little bit of love, a little bit of encouragement, and a little bit of coaching. If you missed the number midway through the podcast, get your pen ready right now or get ready to type this number into your phone. The number is 314-207-5010. Coach Matt is standing by. Text him right now, 314 207 5010 text them your name 
and text them one area in your life that you want to begin seeing some real improvement in 2021. And undoubtedly, you will be hearing throughout the year about the impact that we are having on individuals, on teams, on, and on entire organizations through the Live Inspired Together coaching movement. Why not join us? Why not be an early adapter? Why not experience this life-giving gift for yourself? So one final time, my friends, text Coach Matt at 314-207-5010. And he and I and our community are looking forward to doing life together with you. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. At Keeley Companies, they do things a bit differently. They proudly call themselves Keelians. They pride themselves on swag that will knock your socks off. They have a dedicated vice president of learning and education. They have their own philanthropic foundation called Keeley Cares. They empower every Keelian to speak up if they feel unsafe. They have the most competitive wellness challenges around. They are committed to being better leaders of diversity and inclusion. They aren't afraid to dream big, and in the words of my friend Rusty Keeley, they're just getting started. Check out more information on them by going to keeleycompanies.com.